Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Mr. John Ross, president at Maine Pharma US. John has spent over 15 years in the pharma contract services space in very senior roles. He joined Maine in 2013 as a VP and transitioned to president in 2017. Today, he oversees over 550 people in North Carolina and has managed a huge injection of investment in the business. John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you, Raman. I look forward to talking with you. Just to start off with, John, it'd be great if you can just tell the list, listeners a little bit about you and, and obviously what your role entails at, at Maine Pharma. Sure. Yeah, I've spent a fair amount of time in the pharmaceutical industry. My, my role at Maine Pharma is president of the U- U.S. division. And what that includes is our contract services segment, which is one of three business segments in the United States, as well as our U.S. operations, quality, and our supply chain network. Great. Do you mind just for our, for our listeners kind of explain the differentiation between main pharma and metric contract services and just so just so the audience can get a feel for how they're how they're connected yeah main pharma is the parent company it's an australian listed publicly held company that has three business units in the united states we have a brand business a generic business so a proprietary products segment within within that component and a legacy contract services business, which was how Maine Pharma got introduced to the United States in 2012 through the acquisition of metrics in Greenville, North Carolina. And we still grow and expand that contract services business as a hybrid part of the overall broader group. Great. And just let's, let's rewind the clock, John, and it'd be really interesting to find out, you know, how you, well, firstly, where you're from and kind of how you kind of went through, you know, education, et cetera, and, and ultimately how your career ended up in, in the pharma space. What, what did that journey look like? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, probably got here a bit by good fortune as opposed to uh, intent. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in Toronto, just outside of Toronto in Canada. Spent most of my uh, early career there as well. Educated in, at the University of Western Ontario in, in London, Ontario, Canada. And, um, you know, ended up actually my first role coming out of university was in the insurance industry, working as an actuary. And uh, ultimately, you know, was a young person working in a skyscraper in downtown Toronto, looking at my boss and my boss's boss and kind of thinking, I really don't want either one of their jobs. Um, (laughs) So where's this all headed? So I went back to, uh, to school. I did my MBA also at the University of Western Ontario. Coming out of that, I ended up joining Eli Lilly, and that was really what sort of got me into the pharmaceutical industry in a really interesting role where, you know, basically I was uh, leveraging my financial background to uh, assist, you know, acquisition due diligence, essentially related to uh, Eli Lilly um, acquisition targets. So that's how I got to pharma. And, you know, it's sort of one step, you know, after another from there. Very good. And, and- Tell me what what was the what's the culture difference or um, uh, mentality difference between working in, in a you know a big pharma company like Eli Lilly, uh, you know very well respected organization, uh, and versus say you know the your contract service 
your more recent experience in contract services, how, how are they different? And, you know, what, I suppose, similarities do you see across, across the two? Yeah, I think, you know, Lilly was a phenomenal company and I probably being so inexperienced at the time, probably didn't realize just how phenomenal it really was. So after a few years there and a couple different roles, I uh, had an opportunity to join uh, Pricewaterhouse as a, as a consultant in pharma. And I took that as a, a way to really get to know pharmaceutical supply chain in particular a little bit more deeply and get some exposure to multiple companies. Um, and it was sort of through that that I ended up in my first contract services business, which was CPL in Toronto. Ended up spending 13 years there uh, as part of a, a really neat growth story of a privately held contract services business where, you know, we grew that business probably 3x, almost 4x over the course of a 13-year period that, uh, that I worked there. Excellent. And then tell me what, what was the link to, to Maine Pharma then? So how did you transition from, from that role to Maine? Yeah, we, um, you know, we were not immune to the challenges of the global financial crisis in uh, sort of the 2010 timeframe. We had acquired a site with CPL in Buffalo, New York, and that's how I ended up moving from Canada to the United States was uh, I with CPL, I came to Buffalo to oversee the acquisition and integration of that operation. In the 2010 timeframe, a lot of the volume in that site was uh, being produced for Big Pharma. And a lot of companies at that time were repatriating volume back to their own sites. So we let, we were a little bit exposed. We had two operations, one in Canada, one in the US, that essentially were doing the same thing. And we were finding that both were somewhat underutilized. So we actually decided to do a consolidation um, mm-hmm. and we closed the site in Buffalo. And I sort of at that time said, you know, I'm going to take my green card that I now hold and my ability to work and live in either Canada or the U.S. and uh, consider some new opportunities. So CPL support, supported me through that transition as uh, you know, I facilitated the wind down of the Buffalo operation. And then ultimately I became a free agent mm-hmm. and found myself at Maine Pharma. Great. And, uh, and just out of curiosity, just because obviously I've, uh, I've myself obviously moved to the, to the U S recently, just curious to know how you find the U S compared to, to Canada. And, uh, you know, I, I do love Toronto. It's a, it's a fantastic city. So just purely, for curiosity on my <laughs> my part, how you find the difference between living, uh, you know, in, in Buffalo and, oh, sorry, in North Carolina now versus um, versus Toronto? Well, look, it, you know, vast majority of the things are quite similar or the same. Clearly, there's a, a far more capitalist mindset in the United States than there is in Canada. And that's one of the things that as a Canadian moving to the US, I sort of had to Kind of get my arms around and, and come to grips with, which I think was, uh, you know, you grow up with a maybe a more of a social structure mindset in a place mm-hmm. like Canada. You know, I think that uh, our experience has been extremely positive, and you know, there's there's as I say, there's more similarities than differences, but uh, I do find that uh, the opportunity to to grow available capital and things like that that are necessary to really sort of support the growth of a business. I still believe there's probably no better place than the United States to do that. Yeah. I mean, I have to echo that, that view. Having seen it from, uh, from the UK to, to the U S is just that access to capital and, and 
the ambition in, uh, of companies in the US is uh, is phenomenal. So, and, and obviously growth is, seems to be in your, <laughs> in your DNA, having done it, you know, at TPL and, and obviously at Maine Pharma here in the, in the US. Can you explain a little bit of, you know, how you've transitioned the business from, you know, when you joined in, in 2013 and obviously became president in 2017, what that, growth has looked like and you know uh, and also a little bit more about i know um you know in terms of niche capabilities and you know where the demand for uh, men's capabilities in contract services where, where that's come from and what's driving that It'd be really interesting if, if you're able to share some of that information sure you know what main pharma bought when they acquired metrics was a very successful uh, sort of sole proprietorship type business in the contract services space and there's, there's a lot of companies um, in the services arena that, that really have that similar origin or maybe even be in that same place today. And when Maine Pharma acquired the company, what they really made available was, you know, the opportunity to have an ambition that was perhaps more bold than a sole proprietorship was able to take on. So really kind of that investment in infrastructure and systems and top tier talent and things like that, that really allow a, a business to, to grow and scale in a controlled way. You know, we, in a very sort of prioritized sequence of uh, initiatives, we established, you know, those systems, those processes, those capital investment initiatives that we needed to pursue in order to, to really create a framework and a base on which, you know, a much larger business could run. All along, though, what we were so careful of is, you know, the, the reputation and history of the metrics business in this space has been one of, of great science and, and great customer service. And, you know, <laughs> coming in and, and leading that almost seven years ago, um, you know, it, it, it was then and it still is today constantly on my mind not to mess that up. Because <laughs> that's, that's sort of the secret sauce, I think, in terms of... Um, our business, it's certainly the, the key differentiators that we want to continue to depend on as we grow this business. And, you know, as we, you know, service more companies, as we add more people, as we expand capacity, those things are first and foremost in our mind. As it relates to niche capabilities, you know, there was some pretty good foresight in this sole proprietorship business back then in terms of some early, very early investment in uh, potent handling capabilities for oral solid dose, as well as kind of positioning the business principally towards novel drug development. And so we're still in that realm today and have invested, you know, significantly and further around, you know, becoming, I think, one of the foremost players in oral solid dose potent capability, right from, you know, first in human all the way through to global commercial supply mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and really continuing that focus on the novel drug development space, you know, at any one time in our company, we've got somewhere in the order of 40 to 45 new NDAs, um, in development with, you know, wow. a various mix of, uh, of companies from around the world. Yeah, it's, it's it's a really interesting point you bring up, and uh, yeah, it's fascinating to see that kind of foresight of of high potency. And actually, in in researching for obviously speaking to you, I noticed you'd you'd cited a um, a piece of research in a in a magazine around the kind of high potency API market expecting to be twenty seven billion 
uh, $27 billion in, in 2023, representing kind of a 63% jump in, in 2016, which is absolutely phenomenal. It's a exceptional uh, level of growth in such a short space of time. So it sounds like you guys are, are well positioned to to take advantage of, of the growth opportunities. Yeah, I think we are. Obviously, success sometimes comes as much from luck as it does from good planning. And uh, as I said, I think we benefited from the fact that there was some early foresight there. Uh, we mm-hmm. recognized it, we invested further in it, and now I think we are ahead of the curve in terms of um, what we can offer to clients um, in terms of delivery of, of potent handling in the oral solid space. Great. And I have to ask just because um, I actually spent a portion of my life living in, in Sydney, Australia. So I'm just intrigued to know how, how it is working with a kind of an Australian headquartered business. Um, how, how do you find the kind of culture and communication differences? And I actually have quite a few Aussie friends myself. So I'm just kind of interested to know how you, how you find that culture uh, fit. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, it's actually fantastic. Generally, probably the, the ex-Australian view of Australians is they sort of have this work hard, play hard kind of punch above their weight sort of, you know, if you think about Australia in the Olympics, you know, they always on a pro rata basis win way more medals than their population would imply they should. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, so I, I see the Australian component of our business as, you know, they really are high energy, high performing, high talent. You know, they come from great education in Australia. And, and so it marries really well, I think, with, with our sort of ambitious young company. And, you know, actually being Canadian, I think sometimes those things that don't necessarily translate for the Americans translate okay for me. Because <laughs> um, some of the slang is similar to some of the Canadian slang that we might use. Yeah. And so we have a good laugh about those types of things. <laughs> But I would say too, you know, when you when you work so closely with an Australian uh, parent, um, the sun never really sets. So, uh, you know, as as we're starting or hoping to wrap up our day, they're kind of just waking up over there and, and getting started. So, you know, you got to be prepared to work some evenings, yeah, um, or some very early mornings. And uh, it goes both ways, and we share the load. But uh, it ultimately is uh, it's a really vibrant, healthy environment. Yeah, and, and just kind of switching gears on that point, kind of linked to what you said, just interested to know, obviously, you've, you've run a very successful business. I know you're a family man and you work uh, multiple time zones. Um, how do you balance it all? And you know, do you have a secret to, to having a balance in, in kind of, you know, with work and life and, you know, getting things done? Yeah, you know, I get that. I get asked that quite a bit, actually, because you get it asked. You get asked of it from employees and you know, prospective new hires and things like that. And look, I think work-life balance is—it's um, different and it's personal for everybody. Um, you know, I find time. You know, I've—I've I've, through my career, I've sort of been tried to have the discipline that I kind of own the weekend. Uh, that's not to say that you know there aren't occasionally things to do around sort of cleaning up emails or catching up on that kind of stuff. And, and it's a great time to, to read agreements and catch up on market research and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, obviously I've traveled a lot. I've, I've been gone a lot Monday through Friday and it's a trade-off. Um, yeah. you know, I obviously, I love what I do. I've, I've been given great opportunities and interesting work, 
But I think ultimately when you come home, as long as that part of your life is fulfilling, then you're sort of better prepared to make the time that you do have with family to be higher quality um, mm-hmm. because you recognize that it is somewhat constrained. Absolutely. And I, and I have to agree. I mean, I, it's similar to what you said, that kind of owning the weekends. And I remember when my second child was, was born, I made a, a very conscious decision to keep the weekends for my family. And as you say, you know, some things come in, especially when you're working on international time zones, but that protecting that time and being mindful and intentional about that is, is really hard to do. But I, I, I certainly see a lot. Um, I actually see European and Asian um, business associates that I come across manage it really well. Actually, it's interesting being in the US. I actually think in the US, I see people struggling with it more. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure whether that's a culture thing or whether that's a, just, a, you know, just the way things are here. But it's fascinating. And obviously, you have a, a balanced view given your kind of Canadian roots and Australian influence that you can manage to get some some kind of balance. Yeah, I think generally in the U.S., it's it's harder for people to envision truly disconnecting. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. You know, I think, you know, anyone who looked at your resume or LinkedIn profile, it couldn't help but be impressed with what you, what you've achieved. And tell me about any mistakes that you've made in your career, if you're, if you're willing to share. And cause I'm, I'm often more interested in the mistakes people made and what they learned from them as much as, you know, what, what great stuff you've done. Are you able to share any, any particular moments or any things that have happened in, in your kind of career? Yeah, I, sure. I think, you know, I, I think as a young person, I was pretty impatient. Um, and, uh, you know, so jumped around a little bit, sort of took, it took a bit of time to find myself, but, you know, ultimately, even though I was moving around a little bit and maybe didn't quite give the opportunities that I was in at the time. And I think particularly around Lily, you know, that's the kind of organization that, you know, sticking around a long time and soaking up as much as you can is probably wise, but you know, I needed to, to test the waters a little bit in, in other places. And, uh, and so maybe, maybe made a, a few quick moves, but ultimately it turns out that, you know, I was always learning something new and ultimately it was sort of challenging myself along the way. So, you know, it, it, it worked out in that regard. I think the other element would be, I'm a very organized and, and sort of controlled person. So, you know, I think if I could go back, I'd probably have be a little bit more aggressive too, in mm-hmm. terms of some of the step out opportunities that um, maybe could have taken advantage of. Look, I'm certainly happy with the career trajectory that I've had, but I think, you know, and it's that sort of point of view that that hindsight's better informed, of course. But <laughs> uh, but I find that you know if it, there there were things that passed by because you know I maybe was too focused on ensuring that. The, the things that were on the task list at the time were done well and maybe, you know, perhaps had some blind spots to some greater strategic opportunities. Yeah. And, and what it, what is it that, what would you attribute your kind of career trajectory to in terms of a skill or competence that you have? You mentioned you were a very organized 
is that the thing that's uh, and you, you strike me as being a very calm and in and kind of quietly confident guy as well what is there a particular skill that you are that you excel at that's just allowed you or has been there throughout your your career i think more than anything it's been a thirst for learning mm-hmm. you know i i really i really do love education i really do love new experiences and new opportunities meeting new people you know in when you've when you've done sort of worked in that way for 20 plus years i think you know a calm and a confidence actually come for me came later um it was almost an element of maturing a little bit because i wouldn't just generally character characterize myself as a you know super confident super calm person in fact my kids would probably tell you quite differently (laughs) but i think you know because i've exposed myself to a lot of different things you know now i have a much more balanced perspective i feel um as a result. And, uh, mm-hmm. I think that serves me really well. And, and do you have any kind of habits or rituals or routines or anything that you do on a, a daily weekly basis? That's kind of allowed you to develop a kind of consistent work ethic. You know, around work ethic, I would say that, uh, I'm probably one of the most responsive mm-hmm. executives, uh, people could work for or with, um, you know, so emails don't go unanswered, phone calls don't go unreturned. I try to be very clear relative to uh, expectations, you know, goals, timelines, these types of things. But then I also hold myself to the same expectation in return. Yeah. And I think, I think that served me really well. And, you know, honestly, the, the success that I have had has been, you know, as much about good fortune around being in good positions with good team members at the right time. And then, you know, obviously I had to do something to capitalize on that. And uh, the two kind of came hand in glove. They weren't independent events by any means. And and just on that point there, which you mentioned kind of, or hinted at kind of leaderships and team. So what is your leadership style and what have you, or not necessarily just your style, what, is, what has worked well for you in kind of leading senior management teams and, and actually achieving tremendous success in it from a business perspective? Is there a, is there any secrets you're able to, to share with the listener? Yeah, I don't think there's anything innovative there, but I think as it relates to my style, it, I'm highly collaborative. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm just as happy to be a team member as I am the team leader. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, and I think what has served me well is I'm quite comfortable making a decision um, and being accountable for that decision. And I do find, you know, in some circumstances, you know, people who are aspiring for leadership positions, they 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 think the you know the the title or the the scope sounds really interesting. But ultimately, you got to be able to make a decision amongst mm-hmm. you know imperfect information. You got to be able to set expectations and, you know, have the tough conversations and, and really be willing to challenge yourself by putting people around you that, um, you know, have, have different and, and innovative ideas around how to do something differently. I think as I've advanced in my career, you know, it's always on my mind to be a better communicator and mm-hmm. uh, to be clear about, you know, what my thinking is relative to an opportunity and 
to make sure that that gets tested by the team so that I'm not sort of working away and tasking people with small bits of um, things to do towards that ambition, but they actually understand the ambition overall so that there's an aligned sort of pursuit here um, that we're all going after. No, I love, I love that. And I couldn't, I couldn't agree more in terms of that kind of, it's a, it's an ongoing sense of improvement with communication and, and kind of getting that balance between communicating enough, but not necessarily kind of everything. And one thing I just want to circle back to, which you mentioned before, as you said, you had a, a real thirst for learning, which is something that's kind of close to my heart, just purely on the basis that I'm a big believer in, in personal progression and, and continuous learning. What is your learning look like so what does that mean in terms of you know practically where do you get your information and what type of information is kind of part of that continuous learning curve for you john yeah you know i've what it's become it used to be a lot more of reading uh mm-hmm. now it's become you know particularly when i'm traveling uh, i rely on things like podcasts or ted talks and uh, these types of things and so i sort of always kind of load up my phone or my ipad with you know, the next wave of uh, materials I'm looking for, you know, and for me, it's, it's usually, if it's podcasts, it's interviews with business leaders. Um, if it's uh, TED Talks, it's, it's around leadership or managing teams and, and these kinds of things. And that's, that's a key piece for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that's obviously a, an area that, you know, I continue to feel like is, you know, from a personal development perspective is, uh, you know, business that remains unfinished yeah yeah absolutely and uh well you're in the right place because you're being interviewed on a podcast right now yeah, so yeah I'm, so maybe I'm, somebody uh, will listen to my podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's it's funny you should say that because i mean i have to say i mean i've i've hugely benefited in my career and life from from being uh constantly open to to new podcast information i think it's a very easy way to absorb really good information and really rich deep information and it's actually one of the reasons that you know I started this podcast was exactly that and obviously specific to the sector that we work in and not just kind of general business but yeah I'm, I'm very confident that some of the lessons that you shared today will will be benefiting other people when when things get back to normal and people are on flights or on their way to the airport or moving around then they'll hopefully benefit and uh, and I just want to take a quick sidestep and just just ask how how would your best friend describe you in in three words john (laughs) maybe doesn't sound overly uh uh, exciting but um the words that might come to mind would be like things like reliable (laughs) dependable Mm -hmm. accountable that might be the top three um (laughs) so yeah qualities they're good qualities (laughs) to have in a friend (laughs) (laughs) yeah um very good. And I just want to move on uh, towards the kind of back end of the, the conversation and talk a little bit more about the the sector. And obviously at, at time of recording, you know, we're in the midst of uh, kind of the COVID-19 crisis for, for not just the industry, but obviously the, the entire world. And interesting to know, is there anything that you've seen so far or anything that you're expecting to see from, you know, from what's going on now uh, that will kind of change the way we do business or change the way that you guys will operate uh, anything you're able to share would be would be really interesting yeah um you know we have we have uh, like every pharmaceutical development and manufacturing business we've we've modified the the ways in which we were working 
you know, to reduce the density on site to ensure that, you know, from an employee safety perspective, we can minimize the number of close contacts in any given day, you know, ideally to none. It's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, we have, we're discovering, uh, particularly in the context of remote work mm-hmm. in areas where remote work um, has become part of our fabric, that in a lot of areas where, you know, because people can focus maybe a little bit more deeply, they don't have sort of the normal interruptions of being at a factory or, or in an office, that, um, you know, for us, we're contemplating several of these roles kind of have that hybrid structure going forward to really give people that time to be focused, creative, and, and uh, you know, really kind of come to better solutions and, and outcomes than they might otherwise be if they have to sort of stop and go and pick up things mm-hmm. multiple times across the course of a day or a week. So I, I think that. so I think more remote work is certainly coming. I think just in terms of how we, one of the things we do as a contract services business is we host clients all the time. You know, so we're looking at how do we leverage technology to support audits, um, to support even virtual batch uh, observation. Um, so, you know, one of the benefits we have is because we manufacture a number of controlled substances in our operations as well, we have video surveillance in every part of our facility. So we've actually been conducting, you know, Zoom virtual batch observation with clients wow. during this time. You know, so it's a way to kind of cut our teeth with the technology and the approach. Clients have been really tolerant of it because, you know, even though it's maybe imperfect in the, the first instance here, it's better than nothing. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, because really nothing is the alternative, uh, particularly, you know, in the early days of this when, when really fresh visitors to the site is, is you know, kind of uh, discouraged. You know, we're, we're limiting essential visitors to the site only. Yeah. So, so those are some of the things that I think, you know, COVID-19 is, is bringing for us, you know, as a solid dose manufacturer, we're not really in the conversation as it relates to cures or treatments here. You know, obviously most of those are injectable products, but we have had some clients approach us about, you know, some of their antiviral medications and uh, potentially some application there, but uh, it's, it's not a large segment of, of our activity right now. And, and tell us what, what kind of exciting things are, are going on or, or on the horizon uh, for, for, for Maine Pharma. Yeah, as you know, we commissioned uh, a large commercial manufacturing operation uh, just two years ago, uh, almost exactly. You know, that site has now been approved by, approved, you know, regulatory inspected and, and obviously available to, to supply um, in the markets like Japan, Taiwan, Europe, US, FDA, of course. You know, we built that with uh, further expansion in mind, and we're actually underway with some of the additional expansion in there. So extending our potent handling capabilities even further uh, in that operation, growing our capacity even further because the uptake in terms of the demand for the uh, commercial offering that we now have available to customer service or to contract services clients mm-hmm. is, uh, has, has been really strong. It's enabling also our sort of pursuit of actually having a smaller batch size offering uh, for clients because in this you know world of so many rare disease and orphan drug developments, we're actually finding 
our challenge is actually making batches smaller, not making them larger. And, and, uh, and so, you know, we're investing in a whole lot more versatile, flexible, kind of, you know, easy to set up and easy to break down and change over type equipment and rooms that can handle potent compounds and do so, you know, on a small scale, um, which is a bit non-traditional in terms of the classic oral solid dose kind of multi-room, different unit operation sort of con- um, process to to manufacture a, a dosage form. And it, let me ask, is it, is it still a, a quite a manual process when you're making small batches, particularly with potent compounds, you know, having, having been, having worked actually in a facility many years ago, which did similar things, how has the technology moved on to support small batch production or is it still a relatively manual process and, you know, labor intensive? It is still quite manual, quite labor intensive. Yeah. There's, there are some, you know, emerging technologies around continuous manufacturing, but on small scale, uh, still pretty limited implementation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's still, you know, unit operation driven, um, very high manual manipulation to make it happen. And, and I've, I've got a couple of moments, so, you know, I've got a few more moments of your time. So I just wanted to pick up on, you know, potent compounds and potent products. And, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time with people in the sector that would say, oh, absolutely not touching potent compounds. They're, a, <laughs> they're an absolute nightmare to, to handle and process. So for people that don't know much about, uh, I suppose, the, the challenges involved, how challenging is the handling and processing and manufacturing of potent products? And why does it, you know, give people nightmares and keep them well away from it? Cause it is a very specialist and in demand offering given the kind of therapeutic areas and services. So are you able to just kind of talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think, you know, I think the greatest fear is, you know, everybody well understands the pharmacological effect. But I think the fear comes in understanding what it means in the various unit operations and processes that you need to undergo in order to make the, the drug product. And, and so, and, and once you've sort of tackled that for, you know, various products and, and sort of crossed that hurdle a few times, and obviously we continue to learn and improve and, evaluate how we're handling and what the sort of industrial hygiene data would tell us in terms of where we're doing it really well and where we still have opportunity for further improvement. But generally, these things start to look a lot the same. And so it is possible for companies, I think, to get to a level of confidence because they, you know, it's, they've seen it before. Mm-hmm. You know, where the risk comes in is, is I think, mostly in the fear of the unknown and yeah. you know, the, cause everybody understands the dramatic effect if it's mishandled, but you know, and, and obviously in early stage compounds, there, there may not be a whole lot known yet about the true pharmacological effect, but usually at that point you're starting pretty small. So, you know, I think we've, we've just have enough body of evidence and experience around so many different molecules that, yeah. uh, we, we feel like anytime we're looking at something, we're kind of say, yeah, this is a lot like, you know, X, which we've handled before safely. 
Yeah, I have to say, I mean, it's fascinating getting that insight from you. And uh, I'm sure we could spend an hour just talking about <laughs> high potency compounds and API. And so just coming to the, kind of the end of the, the conversation, is there any any comments or requests for the audience um, that, you, that you'd like to, to give? You know, I think just as an industry, probably in, in my view, one of the, the greatest opportunities we have is to sort of improve the process to make it easier to um, update a product's application or file. You know, this is still an industry in which change is really hard. Mm -hmm. um, and I think ultimately it stifles innovation. It stifles innovation around, you know, productivity, around process robustness, you know, around supply chain reliability and, and even cost. And I think, you know, all of us in this space uh, need to continue to pursue you know, a pathway, you know, thinking about us as, as manufacturers and developer, developers of drugs, a, a pathway that ultimately enables pharmaceuticals to be produced, you know, as, as reliably and efficiently as so many other industry sectors, manufacturing processes do. Well, I think that's a, it's a salient point to, to end, end the interview and just to say thank you so much for for making the time, John, and, and sharing your experience and insights on the sector. Thank you, Roman. My absolute pleasure. Nice talking with you. Hi again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter and we will see you again next week. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.